Almighty God, you've promised that your holy word, which goes forth from your mouth, will not return to you empty, but it will accomplish what you desire. It will succeed in the matter for which you've sent it. May your word have its way, we pray, in every heart this day, through Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. Amen. So, have you ever wondered what your name means? Have you ever looked it up, find out? Do you believe that it reveals anything at all about you? Does your name have meaning? Does it say something about your character or not? Do we determine our names or do our names determine us? I don't know. God hasn't said that. He hasn't informed us about that. But this I do know. In the Bible, names have great meaning. They reveal an awful lot about a person. Names are given in Holy Scripture to inform you about who this person is and what this person is like. For example, uh, Adam, the first man, we call him Adam because he's taken from the ground. In Hebrew, that's Adamah, and so we call him Adam, or Adam. Uh, Abram, the word from the book of Genesis, that proper noun, means exalted father, but God renames him Abraham, the father of a multitude. The name Hannah means gracious. Uh, Joanna means Yahweh, or the Lord is gracious. All of these names have meaning. And that's true as well in our gospel reading for this morning on page 8 in your worship bulletin. We're going to kind of quickly read through this, make a few comments, and then look at our outline. So beginning in Matthew 1, verse 18, we read this. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary, and Mary at this time, well, if we if she's like your normal Israelite girl in the first century, she's probably anywhere from 12 to 14 years of age. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, Joseph's probably about 18 to 20 years of age. By this time, he's learned a trade to support his family. And betrothal normally lasts about a year. It's an arranged marriage. And Jewish couples practiced sexual restraint. There wasn't any sex before marriage. That was verboten. You didn't do that. That would bring shame upon the family, especially upon the father of Mary. Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, he's called husband even though they're betrothed because this is a legally binding agreement. Her husband Joseph, being a just man, he's righteous, and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Resolved to divorce her quietly. Now, if you look at Roman numeral 1 across the, the page, we're talking today about Joseph, among others, Jesus' other parent. You hear a lot about Mary, very little about Joseph. 
But Joseph is really a model father here and a model husband. Letter A, the most important thing a father can do for his children is love their mother. Okay? Most important thing any dad can do for his children, love their mother. Why? Because that reflects the love of Jesus for his bride, the church. So when we as husbands practice that, we reflect Christ and more brightly than otherwise. And in fact, I'm told that in Spain, uh, March 19th is the Feast of St. Joseph or the Feast of San Jose. And it's also Father's Day in Spain because Joseph here is the model dad. And he's called just or righteous not because he's going to divorce Mary, even though that's proper in this case, because he knows he's not the dad, and he's thinking, you need to be with the one who is the father. See, he doesn't know better yet, so this is what he's thinking. He's not just because he's divorcing her. He's just because he will divorce her quietly. Quietly. He's not going to make a scene. He's not going to make a federal case out of this. He might, but he won't. He's not going to bring any more shame upon her. This is loving her, you see. This is the most important thing uh, a husband can do for his wife, is to, uh, for his children, is to love the mother. And so that's what he's doing. He's going to put her away, break the agreement, quietly. And it's interesting. A few chapters later, when our Lord teaches about divorce in Matthew 19, he prohibits it except for unchastity. That's the legal grounds for divorce in God's eyes, unchastity. Okay? And that's what Joseph is doing. So kind of like father, like son in a sense, the son is picking that up and reflecting that later on in Matthew 19. The only reason for divorce is unchastity. And even then, it's not required, but you may in that case. So verse 20, but as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Now this is interesting, because his namesake, now, the patriarch Joseph, in the book of Genesis, many, many centuries earlier, he was a man who received dreams from the Lord. The Lord would reveal his will to Joseph through dreams. And Joseph, by the way, this is the first dream that we know of that Joseph is receiving from the Lord. Before chapter 2 of Matthew is over, he will receive three more dreams. So kind of like his namesake, the patriarch, Joseph receives dreams. Saying, Joseph, son of David. Now we'll, we'll come back to that. Do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Okay, you will name him. And here's the name. And notice I bold-faced it, because three times in this passage, 
the same phrase occurs. Bear a son, give him his name. Okay? That's sort of the theme of the passage, in other words. It pops up three times. It's got to be the theme here. All right? You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. We'll come back to that as well. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He's obeying the angel here. He took his wife, and we would assume immediately. And in taking her to be his wife, what would the townspeople assume about Joseph? They would assume that he's impregnated Mary before the wedding ceremony. There's a, certainly shame in that. And I would hasten to add that in our connection with Jesus, however we're connected to Jesus, and we're connected to Jesus every bit as close as Joseph, really actually more closely than Joseph, you will suffer shame. It, it will happen through your connection to him. The world does not love him. The world misunderstands him. It's not necessarily the world's fault, but that's the reality. And we bear his shame as well. Verse 28, But knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. And that's Roman numeral 1, letter B. Joseph formally adopted Jesus by giving him the name. That's formalizing the adoption. When he names Jesus, then he's adopting him. And if you ever wonder how Jesus becomes a son of David, this is how. He's an adopted son of David. Now, he might be physically descended from David through his mother Mary. We're not explicitly told that in the scripture. It's sort of implied in Luke's gospel, but it's not stated. But here he's definitely the adopted son of David. And in the ancient world, as an adopted son was every bit as much a son as one who was born in that household. I've already shared that we bold-faced this sentence, this phrase, bear a son and give him his name, call his name, three times, because this passage is about the naming of the Lord. And remember, names in the Bible are pregnant with meaning. So Roman numeral two, the first name that he's given, Yeshua, Lord save or Lord help. This, by the way, was the cry of Jewish mothers in childbirth. Yeshua, you know, Lord help. And therefore, it became a very common name in, in Israel. Uh, we also know this name as Joshua. Uh, the Greeks say Jesus, they could not say Yeshua. Greeks couldn't say shh. I wonder what their parents did to the little, little kids when they were acting up. Shh. But they couldn't say shh, so they would say Jesus. That's how they would pronounce Yeshua. So a very common name in Israel, the cry of mothers in childbirth. And notice, he's given this name for, letter A, he will save 
his people from their sins. I've italicized that to emphasize it. He will save his people from their sins. What does that mean? Well, it means more than forgive. It includes forgiveness, the removal of guilt. You know, our guilt is what drives us to do so many things that we do. We're, we're, we're plagued with guilt, sometimes false guilt, sometimes true guilt. But guilt, sometimes it drives us to do what we do or to avoid other things that we should do. The Lord removes the guilt, but he does a whole lot more in salvation. He also removes the consequences of sin, which, which include sickness and death. And on the last day, these things will be totally and completely removed. So he saves us, not just forgiving us our sins, but saving us from sin and sin's consequences. And notice letter B, for he will save his people from their sins. From their sins. You see, Jesus doesn't lead you to call attention to your neighbor's mistakes. He calls you, he always will confront you with your mistakes, with your failure, with your sin. Why? Because with him there's forgiveness. And never be afraid to admit your mistakes to him because he is the Lord who saves. He's the Lord who forgives and more. With him there is mercy. You won't find much mercy out there, but with the Lord there is mercy. He doesn't demonize other people in order to make you feel better about yourself. He's not Hitler standing up and demonizing the Jews. He's not Louis Farrakhan uh, standing up and demonizing white people. This is how some demagogues appeal to an audience. They, they point the finger at someone else. Jesus will point the finger at you. And understand, it's only to reveal to you his mercy. His mercy. And then let her see, for he will save his people from their sins. Okay? Now, the popular idea in first century uh, Palestine or Judea was that the Messiah would do away with sinners, not with sins, but with sinners, with those people who need to be removed or they need to be dealt with in some way. But this Messiah, the true Messiah, comes to deal with sins. And he deals graciously with sinners, not removing us, but forgiving us. So he will save his people from their sins. He's not a political Messiah, in other words. He doesn't come to rearrange this earthly order. In fact, he's established the earthly order, and he rules through earthly rulers. They may depart from his will. They may go out, they, they may violate his will in their earthly rule. That's on them. But he's established the orders that exist. His kingdom is not of this world. It is of a higher order. It is eternal. It's not temporary. Like every four years it changes. No. It's not of this world, thankfully. It's enduring. So, Yeshua, Lord save, Lord help. And then Roman numeral three, the second name, Immanuel in Hebrew, means God with us. And letter A uh, refers to verse 22. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. You see, Scripture 
has a divine character. It's the word of the Lord. It also has a human character. It's spoken or written by people. And when you read the New Testament, when you read the Old Testament, you see differences in style, differences in vocabulary. The Lord uses people to proclaim and to expound and to write his word. And, and we all deliver it a little differently, but it's the same word. It's his word, you see. So letter A, the divine human character of Scripture is revealed in verse 22. And that goes along with letter B, the divine hyphen human character of Jesus. He is the Word of God made flesh, right? You know, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with meaning alongside God. He's distinct from God, but the Word was God. He's also God at the same time. And then we read in verse 14 of John 1, the Word became flesh and dwelled among us. He's divine, fully divine, and fully human. And both are necessary for our salvation. We don't have time to go into that now. Letter C, Jesus is God's saving presence. He is God with us. And how does the Gospel of Matthew end? Lo, I'm with you always to the end of the age. He is God with us. He is the saving presence of God. There is no other. He's it. We said on, uh, I believe it was Wednesday night, that in baptism he clothes us with his righteousness. We put on Christ, according to St. Paul, in baptism, you see. He's with us. He's with us in the Holy Supper. We, we take him in to ourselves. He's poured into our mouths, just as in preaching he's poured into our ears. He's God with us. I'm with you always. And then finally, letter D. His names identify us. His names identify who we are. You see, Jesus' names, and there's a number of them, but his names tell you more about yourself than your name tells about you. If he is God with us, then we are no longer alone in the world. If he is the Lord saves, Yeshua, then we are those who receive his salvation. If he is the good shepherd, then we are his sheep for whom he lays down his life. If he is the true vine, then we are the branches, and from him we derive our nourishment and our support. If he is the way or the road, then he, it is by means of him that we approach the Father. That is to say, your name, whatever it may be, whatever it means, as important as it is, is not nearly as important as his name. His names reveal not only who he is, his names reveal who you are in relation to him. And that's what matters about you. It's not the name you're given. It's the connection you have to Jesus. You know, the only reason why we know about Joseph is his connection to Jesus. That's why he's in the story. The only reason we know about Mary 
her connection to Jesus. That's why she's in the story. Otherwise, you wouldn't know about her. And the reason why you're part of that story of salvation is because of your connection to him. That's what matters about you. In Jesus' name, amen.